Well, uh, we are on week five now of <clears throat> the class on fearing man or uh, how we can uh, fear God instead of man. The last two weeks, um, we've examined particular ways that we can wrongly fear others uh, or the ways that the fear of others can have dominance in our lives. Uh, Kyle discussed the fear of exposure two weeks ago, and then last week Pastor Desmond discussed the fear of rejection. Today we're going to consider the fear of harm from other people. And again, these various types of fears are often interrelated, so uh, fear of harm may be woven into a fear of exposure and or a fear of rejection. And the solution to each of these fears is the same, that is fearing God. Uh, But again, I want to reiterate that we shouldn't consider the fear of God as simply the means uh, or the solution to fearing man per se, but rather that the fear of man is evidence of a lack of fear of God and an obstruction to the proper fear of God. And so the fear of God being our goal and our desire, we don't let the fear of man control us. So the fear of God is our proper disposition. The fear of man is evidence that... uh, Excuse me, I'm sorry. uh, Is uh, evidence of and it hinders the fear the proper fear of God, evidence of the lack of the proper fear of God. And the fear of man can be multifaceted. So uh, something you hear today about f- fear of harm may very well apply to fear of rejection as well. And while it's good to understand our motives uh, for things that we do and the things that we fear, um, and this is helpful, sometimes necessary to our repentance, <clears throat> We don't always have to work out all of the intricacies of our motives to recognize the presence of the fear of man and to know that if the fear of man is keeping us from the fear of God, we need to look to God then in humility and in repentance that he would keep us from the fear of man. And as we all have areas in our lives that we recognize need to change. Uh, We should make it our aim to see that really that God looms large in our understanding of who we are, first of all, what he calls us to be and how we fall short, as well as our identity and security in Christ and the sufficiency of his work for us and the power of his spirit in us to bring change and growth and maturity to our lives. So we do this knowing that ultimately we are accountable to him and we make it our aim to please him as he works in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, having these promises, we cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 
And this would include the defilement of spirit that is the fear of man. And so we, so as we consider the fear of man, particularly as it relates to the harm that man can do to us, uh, look, if you will, at uh, Matthew 10.28 there at the top of your outline. And um, there it reads, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus tells us that we shouldn't fear the harm that others can inflict on us, and yet we still fear. Um, And why is that? It's because people actually can hurt us. he doesn't say, don't fear those who can't hurt you, but don't fear those who can kill the body. People can and do cause real physical harm to one another, and oftentimes they do so quite maliciously. Since Genesis 4, when Cain killed his brother Abel, uh, men and women have had reason to fear that their fellow man can inflict great harm on them, even to the point of death. The Bible, from beginning to end, the unceasing news reports we hear every day, and our own experience all abundantly evidence this. In many ways, this type of fear of men can be the most legitimate form. And I want to be careful to say that when speaking of fearing man, especially in the context of physical harm, I'm not dismissing an appropriate concern for safety and security. God does not call us to reckless abandonment of appropriate measures for security. The scriptures are replete with instructions to avoid evil men who can can harm us and to exercise wisdom in light of the reality of the weaknesses and the sinfulness of man so as to avoid undue harm. And the recognition that God is our fortress, our shield, our protector, does not mean that we don't have any responsibility to exercise wisdom for the protection of ourselves and for others. And not only do we need wisdom and caution, both in preparation against and in avoidance of the harm that others could cause us, but also at times we need great courage and perseverance and faithfulness in the face of threats or in the suffering and aftermath of actual harm. As we think about it, this wise and careful concern for safety Uh, can be seen in many areas of our lives. Um, So I want to just open it up for a minute and and ask what are some of the ways that we exercise wisdom and caution, both in preparation against potential harm and in avoidance of the harm that others could cause us? Any suggestions? Okay, we, we secure our homes with locks maybe with security systems. Sure. What kind of other things do we do? 
we might avoid certain areas, especially uh, after dark. Um, we, uh, for instance, here at the church, we work to provide uh, security and safety for, for uh, the children's ministry. We do background checks. We provide training so as to prevent uh, unnecessary harm. Uh, there's all kinds of ways that, that, we, that we do this. Um, husbands and fathers seek all kinds of ways to protect their wives or children. Um, and uh, mothers of their children as well. Um, there are countless examples, really, that we could use to illustrate this appropriate concern for physical safety. Um, just as we take precautions against physical harm to ourselves and to others, uh, that could come by inanimate uh, or impersonal means. So we also seek to avoid harm from people who would carelessly or deliberately harm us or even kill us. Jesus himself strategically avoided certain circumstances and walked out of situations where physical harm and death was threatened against him. But this was not due to a fear of man. In fact, John says that Jesus would not entrust himself to, himself to certain people because he knew what was in them. He didn't fear them, but he wisely avoided those who would manipulatively seek to use him or maliciously treat him. He didn't fall into people's traps and he wouldn't be their pawn. So rather than fearing man, this type of avoidance of unnecessary harm was an act really of godly wisdom. And wisdom begins where? With the fear of God. So the fear of God leads us to wisely avoid um, circumstances uh, where others may harm us, even where the fear of man isn't the cause for avoiding those situations. And yet Jesus commands us not to fear those who can kill the body. And he takes for granted that naturally we do fear this. So Jesus recognizes that people can hurt us, that they can go as far as killing us, which of course is the ultimate in physical harm. So how do we understand Jesus' command not to fear in light of our natural inclination and our wise avoidance of harm from others? Now, of course, Jesus himself didn't always avoid situations that could cause harm. He often put himself face to face with his enemies and confronted them with hard truth. There was a point in his ministry where he deliberately set his faith face to Jerusalem for the final time, knowing that it would be where he would be crucified. The Apostle Paul, likewise, was determined to go to Jerusalem, though there were prophetic warnings about what would happen there, that prison and hardships were facing him. Uh, but he said that he considered his life worth nothing to him, that he might fulfill the mission of proclaiming the gospel. And in fact, that mission 
had led him into trouble and danger in every city. And in Matthew 10, passage we read a moment ago, Jesus' command comes in the context of him sending out the twelve. He warns them of the dangers that they'll face, not just on this occasion, but as they continue in the faithful discharge of their commission and as they entrust it to others until the end of the age. He sends them out as sheep in the midst of wolves and warns them to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And in the context of faithfully carrying out this commission, he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Fear him, rather, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So we should not understand Jesus to be saying that we should never seek to avoid physical harm, but he is saying that physical harm is not the worst thing that can happen to you. Sinful man can do all kinds of harm to other people, and as far as it goes, killing the body is the worst that he can do to man. But that's as far as it goes. He cannot kill the soul. Yes, when you lose your life, in a real sense, you lose everything that pertains to your physical life. But a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions or in the number of his days on earth. In fact, were a man to possess the whole world and yet lose his soul, then he would truly lose everything. Jesus says, don't fear him who at worst can take from you everything that pertains to this temporal, physical life. And in Luke, it says, and after that, can do nothing more. He can just take your life and take everything else pertains to life, but then he can do nothing more. Um, but he says, but to fear him who can cast your eternal soul into hell. And again, in Luke, it's repeated, yes, I tell you, fear him. Besides the fact that man at worst can kill you, the one who can cast your soul into hell is also the one who determines the number of your days and when and how you will die. Jesus goes on to say that even the life of a sparrow is in God's hands and the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear of man won't add a single hour to your life. So that should put our fears in perspective. There's a sense in which it is utterly inappropriate to try to compare the fear of man to the fear of God. It's not like you would have a scale with a pebble of fear of man on the one side and a mountain of fear of God on the other. They can't be compared on the same scale. One pertains to temporal life and finite man and only fails to keep God in view. But the other, the fear of the Lord, endures forever. So we can understand then the confidence with which the authors of Scripture speak of their trust in God in the face of great threats against them. 
what can man do ultimately? Well, I want to look at a few of these passages together, and you have them on your handout. Um, can I get someone to read uh, Proverbs 19:23? Anyone? Sure. Kyle, thanks. Uh, how about Psalm 27:1? Sure. Thank you, Will. And Hebrews 13:6. Anna, thank you. Okay, All right. Proverbs 19:23. The fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Okay, so the fear of the Lord leads to life, and um, as we live in fear of the Lord, we can rest, satisfied. We can be at peace and know that he will allow no ultimate harm to come to us, even though, again, we may and will suffer in various ways. Ultimately, the Lord watching over us and keeping us, um, we know that as his people, he will preserve us unto eternal life. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Psalm 27:1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Okay, if the Lord is our salvation, again, who, who can we fear? Um, he's our stronghold. No one can get to us but through him, and he uh, will protect us uh, ultimately. So we have no one to be afraid of. And um, Anna. Yeah. What can man do to me? <clears throat> um, Psalm 56, you'll see uh, there as well. If you'll turn there, I want to go ahead and read this. It's another place where we see uh, this strong and confident trust in the Lord's sovereign care and sufficiency, even in the face of attacks and personal harm by his enemies. <clears throat> so I'll go ahead and read this. Psalm 56, verse 1. <clears throat> Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? 
Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So we hear this refrain again and again. Just You hear his complete trust in God, even in the midst of attacks and suffering. But he says, when I'm afraid, I will trust in God. I will trust in Yahweh. What can flesh do to me? What can man do? Do to me. I shall not be afraid. God is for me. What uh, an encouraging perspective um, that the psalmist has here, and that we should have also in the midst of of harm and when the fear of harm uh, threatens us. Of course, there's also Paul's bold assertion. In Romans 8.31, in the form of a rhetorical question where he says, What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And uh, he goes on in verse 35 with uh, a couple more rhetorical questions. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And, and these are all things that Paul had endured and suffered in his own life and ministry. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, in all of these sufferings, in all of these hardships, with all of these threats, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What encouraging words. There's there's no uh, softening the reality of suffering and hardship and threats of harm in this life. But there's strong confidence in God as we face them and as we go through them. Do not fear finite man. Fear God. And as we do, as we live in the fear of God, we'll find that the more the fear of the Lord constrains our lives, then we will live in wisdom and in boldness in the face even of those who would seek to harm us. But again, there is a natural sense in which Threats to our well-being or the well-being of others can elicit in us a response that can be described as fear. So again, we're not denying that. It is 
part of how we're built and it's necessary to living in a hostile world but as we face life in this world and as we face hostility from sinful men we do so in the fear of the Lord not in the fear of them even as the Lord is sovereign over all the acts of men so our responses to men must come out of the overarching recognition of that sovereignty and our faithful submission to it. Nothing comes our way as ultimately being from the hand of man. No such act is possible in God's world. Now that's the end of the sermon. Um, So as Jesus says, we should fear the one who is able to determine our eternal destiny. Whether we live in everlasting judgment or in everlasting life, he's the one who we should ultimately fear. He is the one in whom we should place our trust. He's the one who should control our lives. He's the one that we should serve. And this doesn't mean that When we suffer harm at the hands of others, it isn't deeply impactful in our lives. Suffering harm is always difficult, be it physical, emotional, mental, psychological, sexual, whatever kind of harm. Be it harm done to our persons, our families, our possessions, our finances, our reputation. And the effects of such suffering can continue in our lives for years, even for decades. Some people deal with the effects of what others have done to them for the rest of their lives. And all of their relationships are shaped and strained by the harm done to them by others in the past. Uh, It is certainly understandable how fear of others can dominate in the lives of people who have suffered greatly at the hands of others. But again, the reason Jesus admonishes his disciples and us in this strong way is because we continue to fear, to live in the fear of man when the fear of God is what we need and is where our deliverance ultimately lies. To the extent that the fear of God controls us, the fear of man will not. And so, the rest of our time here, we're going to talk about some ways that we may fear harm from others, and then how the gospel, the gospel fear of the Lord addresses these things. Um, now certainly some will experience this fear of harm from others more than others, than others will because they've experienced physical harm in ways that others have not. You may be one who was the victim of another's sin in this way Um, and we'll consider how the gospel addresses our past experience of harm from others those who have been victims of suffering physical harm uh, really can only properly understand and address their experience through the gospel so this will give us a proper framework to apply our lives to apply to our lives as we seek to grow and as we seek then to minister to others. 
So you see on your handout, uh, the next point is fear of physical harm. Now it's sadly true that some of the most difficult and painful physical harm takes place in the family, whether between spouses, between parents and children, or other family relationships, physical harm in this context can be some of the most difficult to deal with because it took place in the context of relationships that ultimately should be characterized by the highest levels of trust and of love and of vulnerability. Uh, Sexual abuse and exploitation, whatever form uh, it may come, is another factor that causes deep and lasting fear of others for many people who have been harmed in this way. Similarly, someone who emotionally and physically takes advantage of others for manipulative purposes can be a source of lasting fear for many people. Children often have to deal with bullying, which can cause fear of physical harm from others. Uh, And it's important that by instructing and encouraging our children in dealing with other physically violent children, we can help them not only with the present difficulty, but to prepare them also to deal with future grown-up bullies, if you will, who use other means of coercion to intimidate and to control people. So we should teach them uh, when they're young how to deal with these types of fears that they would learn to fear the Lord and not people. People who have served in the military often deal with fear of their military enemy, um, those whose mission it is to kill or capture or disable them. Um, And the effects of this can be enduring and devastating for many people. Um, How about uh, terrorism? In a world where terror attacks are random and seem to be increasingly frequent, uh, or the reality of mass shootings, it seems like you hear about a new one every week or so recently, um, can for some become a source of fear of physical harm at the hand of men. How about fears of harm related to ethnic strife, uh, particularly as it's being stirred in the media and culture today? Uh, there are, or are there, I should ask, are there certain people that you fear physical harm from simply because of the color of their skin or their ethnic background? Do you feel more or less safe around people of a particular skin color. Many people live with these kinds of fears, either based on experience or on things that they've heard or read. As Christians, we should have the perspective of seeing all people through the lens of the gospel. Most fundamentally, all are made in the image of God. Most tragically, all are fallen and in need of redemption. And most gloriously, in Christ, all are one regardless of class or gender or ethnicity. 
we can't carry those worldly fears uh, into our relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Our call to trust God and to love our neighbor means putting to death all such ungodly fears. Then there's the reality of persecution or physical suffering for the gospel. This may not be a primary concern for most of us now, but it is a common reality for many Christians right now in various parts of the world and has been for millennia. But perhaps as you watch the continued decline of the culture and the increasing social and political hostility to biblical Christianity, perhaps you find yourself dealing with rising fears along these lines. And if not for yourself, perhaps for your children. Or perhaps you've been afraid to consider missions work in certain parts of the world because of fear of the physical harm uh, that you might suffer in the field. Remember, this fear is what Jesus primarily was warning against in Matthew 10, this physical suffering for the gospel, which can be a very real threat. But it's precisely that which he warns us not to fear. Again, I want to say that uh, different people struggle with these various forms of fear of harm in different ways. Uh, so as we continue to look at these fears through the lens of the gospel, um, we'll consider a few other categories uh, which may help us think through how this can come into play in our lives. <clears throat> but the fear of harm from others is not limited to fear of physical harm per se. Um, so you see your next uh, point there is fear of non-physical harm. So how else can fear of people, uh, the fear of harm from people affect us? That is not fear of physical harm per se. Well, one way would be uh, abusive speech. And again, and sadly, this can happen in the closest of relationships where we're most vulnerable. It happens in families, between spouses, between parents and children. And it's true that sticks and stones can break bones, but words can also do significant harm to people. Spouses um, who have been hurt perhaps repeatedly fear saying things to their husband or wife or children to their parents for fear of how they'll react. Uh, many people carry the scars of verbal abuse with them years later. A verbally abusive spouse or parent or even a boss can produce the same type of fear of man that physical acts of harm produce. Uh, this is not simply a fear of being rejected necessarily by that person or not being approved by them. Uh, it's also not simply a fear of exposure, though there can certainly be a sense of helpless vulnerability in these situations. But verbal and mental abuse, especially if it's prolonged, can produce emotional and psychological effects that can be deeply confusing and demoralizing, creating a heavy burden that can weigh someone down. <clears throat> Other forms of verbal harm would include sexual harassment, which can be 
very degrading and manipulative, whether receiving unwanted sexual advances from someone or have had to deal with this in the past, it can lead to fear and mistrust of others because of the fear of being harmed in this way. In any of these situations, we should seek to put them in biblical perspective and deal with them appropriately. Each situation may require a different type of response depending on the circumstances. Uh, truly abusive situations should be avoided if possible. And talking about them with a pastor or a trusted brother or sister can be very helpful. Proper responses will include prayer. We may need to pray for the strength to show love and patience and gentleness to the person. In other cases, we may need boldness to speak very direct and truthful words to them. The temptation for those who fear being harmed is often to either be silent or to be angry in response. And the gospel calls us to something more. Um, before moving on, um, maybe we can pause here for a moment to see if there's any questions or comments on anything that's been said. No? All right. <clears throat> well, let's move to point number four then. Um, how fear of harm from others shapes our lives. <clears throat> so what are some of the ways that people's lives can be shaped by this type of fear of man? <clears throat> well, if the fear of man is based in past experience of physical harm, there can be the re very real, real fear that they'll be hurt again. Uh, this fear can be paralyzing to some and deeply damaging to relationships. We can end up harming others because of our reaction to being harmed. There can also be a perpetual sense of being a victim, a temptation to place blame for all future problems on those past experiences. Being a victim can for some become their identity. Being wronged, even terribly wronged, does not relieve us of our responsibility before God. For those who may have been abused, there are also a temptation, there's also a temptation perhaps to think that you deserved it. Uh, so rather than blaming the past experience for all your problems, as in the last example, you blame yourself for the abuse that you experienced at the hands of someone else. While we have to be willing to take responsibility for our actions and even our reactions to being harmed, we also need to place the responsibility for others' actions on them where it rightfully belongs. And here people can get issues confused. Because they know themselves to be sinners, they can take the sinful actions of others against them as being deserved and as God's justice against them. Uh, it is true that we deserve from God far worse than we will ever experience from sinful men. But the unjust actions of sinful men are never justified. While God is always just in all his actions, 
we can't confuse that with the unjust actions of others and falsely put the blame for their actions on ourselves. Now related to this is self-pity, which is another response to past experiences that can be the cause of present fear. Thoughts like, it would be so much easier for me to trust the Lord if only I hadn't experienced this particular thing, or I can never change from fearing man in this way. It's just the way I am. It's inbred in me. <clears throat> or I guess I'm really just a worse sinner than others. Um, and I'll always live with this fear. Self-pity can be a very attractive response for some. It can seem like a humble response. Um, and yet we must recognize that self-pity is simply another manifestation of pride. Just like the self-confident or boastful pride that seems obvious to us, self-pity at its heart is self-focused and seeks trust in self instead of God. <clears throat> Let's uh, consider some other ways our relationships with others can be affected by a fear of harm from others. First, um, again, shameful feelings may plague a person who has experienced some form of abuse or physical harm in the past. As we've said, it's appropriate that we feel a sense of shame for our own sin, and this should be accompanied by repentance and lead to freedom and the experience of forgiveness. But this false sense of shame at being sinned against doesn't have a true gospel remedy because it's a misplaced shame. What I mean is that if you've been sinned against, you can forgive that person, you can pray for that person, you can love and seek the good of that person, but you can't be forgiven and freed from the sin you didn't commit. A false sense of shame may lead the person who has been sinned against to try to deal with that shame by trying to do some form of self-imposed penance or trying to identify a way in which their sin merited being sinned against. It is necessary to repent of sins that we've committed, but it is a vain pursuit to seek to do penance for being sinned against. <clears throat> the person struggling with this fear of man is also likely to struggle with trusting others. If there's a regular fear of harm or past experience of harm, it may be a temptation to view others through that experiential grid, to see them in light of present cynicism or color them with the dark experience of the past. This will hinder honesty and sincerity in relationships. Now in a future class, we'll look more closely at uh, how we move away from this view of others and toward loving others and serving others. Uh, the more we fear, the less we love. And the more tempted we will be then to withdraw and to avoid others. Bitterness is uh, a, a really a deeper sense of some of these other reactions. As we struggle with these other responses and fail to repent of them and pursue Christ-like responses, 
then they will grow into a deeper root of bitterness toward other people and even toward God himself. <clears throat> now, we've mentioned uh, suffering physical harm and abuse and forms of verbal abuse and fears related to these. But harm can be done to people in more subtle ways and also in somewhat less direct, less seemingly personal ways. And we might not think in terms of fear of these things as much as we do as of physical harm. But uh, some do live with these fears more than others and real harm can come in uh, these other areas. I'll mention them just briefly. <clears throat> just as the sixth commandment is against acts of physical harm and attitudes of hatred and contempt against another, the seventh seeks to preserve marital covenantal trust and fidelity. Many have suffered the disruption and even the dissolution of this blessing. And many more fear the devastating harm that results from it. Also, the Eighth Commandment aims at the preservation of personal property and possessions that people have earned and acquired. Some who may have very little or may have lost much, and others who ha may have much but trust too much in such things can live with the fear of harm that can come if their possessions are stolen or lost by the carelessness or neglect of others. And then there's the ninth commandment, which in its focus on true witness is concerned to guard the name and the reputation of others and not falsely subject them to penal sanctions and social judgments. Many live in constant fear of the harm that such loss could bring to them. Fears related to all of these areas of potential loss can elicit a variety of responses and can reveal much about where a person's trust lies. I want to address this with a quote from Jonathan Edwards I came across last week. <clears throat> it comes from his book, Charity and Its Fruits, which is an exposition of 1 Corinthians 13. It deals with how love bears personal injury and pain and addresses the point we just talked about with the response of bitterness that can take hold if we're not careful. He says, Men that have their spirits heated and enraged and rising in bitter resentment when they are injured act as if they thought some strange thing had happened to them. Whereas they are very foolish in so thinking, for it is no strange thing at all, but only what is to be expected in a world like this. They, therefore, do not act wisely that allow their spirits to be ruffled by the injuries they suffer. He then encourages the kind of attitude we as Christians should strive to have in the face of all kinds of suffering and injury and loss. He says, The spirit of Christian long-suffering and of meekness in bearing injuries is the mark of true greatness of soul. 
it shows a true and noble nature and real greatness of spirit to maintain the calmness of the soul in the midst of iniquities and evil. <clears throat> now R.C. Sproul explains what Edwards is getting at here is that the Christian has to keep his eyes focused on God and his relationship with God. There is nothing that another person can do to us that can ever hurt anything but our worldly pleasure. A person can injure our body. A person can steal our money. A person can destroy our reputation. All of those have to do with the cares and pleasures of this world. But we have an inheritance that is laid up in heaven. First Peter 1.4 What Edwards is calling us to in this quote is nothing extraordinary. We are all called to bear our injuries and our grief and our pain and the insults we receive with patience, love, gentleness, and long-suffering. And he cites Matthew 5.11 and 1 Peter 4.14. That's required of all of us because it is part and parcel of the Christian life. He says that too often when we suffer harm at the hands of others, quote, we long so much for God to vindicate us that we want him to punish other people. We want him to bring revenge on our adversaries. What we should be saying instead is, Lord, help me in this experience to learn of you and to get my attention where it belongs. Satisfy me with your glory so that I might not look for my satisfaction in being vindicated in the eyes of others. Again, this is not to dismiss or to minimize the reality of our suffering. We should not only deal with it honestly in our lives, but we should also weep with those who weep because of their suffering. But it is to put our suffering, our loss, the harm done to us by others, and the fear that that can produce into a biblical perspective, into a gospel perspective, into an eternal perspective. Now let me uh, go ahead and conclude uh, with our response to these things. Um, <clears throat> fear of uh, harm from other people is a real temptation and we can respond to this fear in a variety of ways common responses in our culture are to respond with a victim mentality that seeks to excuse their fears and justify sinful responses and attitudes or with a stoic mentality that just acts like nothing ever bothers them or they have no fears or with a vengeful mentality that is determined to get back at whoever has harmed them in a significant way. Each of these are self-protective and self-serving in some way. <clears throat> Many of us have been affected and maybe still are affected by similar approaches to dealing with this type of fear. So how do we learn then to respond differently? How does the gospel help address this kind of of fear of harm. Well, we begin by recognizing 
that the worst harm ever committed or experienced has been endured by Christ. Christ's atoning death for sins that he did not commit. He suffered the just for the unjust by the most unjust means and in the most unjust way. He endured such suffering from sinful men for sins that those whom he had created committed against him. Yet in giving his life, he didn't fear the imminent physical harm from his creatures, but he trusted and feared his father, obeying him even to the point of death on the cross. And as we realize this and as we repent of our own sins and trust in Christ, the reality we come to recognize is that it was for our sins that he suffered and died. The holy, innocent one, the only righteous one, bore the punishment, the pain, the suffering that my sin deserves. In that sense, each of us has brought unspeakable harm upon the Son of God. And because of his grace, we are forgiven as a result of what Christ has done for us. This forgiveness points the way and enables us to forgive others instead of fearing them. Additionally, we recognize that as we follow Christ, we will face suffering. This is part of what it means to be a Christian. We will face physical harm, rejection, and shame if we follow the way of the cross. The purpose of this class, the purpose of the gospel, is not to give us a way to escape these things, but rather to cause us to fear and trust the Lord and not to fear man. Then uh, we also see that the gospel brings us into membership in a new family, in Christ's church, a place where those who have been harmed and those who have caused harm, those who have feared and those who have been feared, redeemed sinners of every sort can all know reconciliation and fellowship because of the forgiveness and mercy found through the one who gave himself for us. And so this is... Um, how we deal with the reality of the fears that face us. We do so in confident trust in God, resting in the gospel of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me go ahead and uh, close out in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that we can call you our Father, that you have made us part of your family and that you are in heaven and rule over all things. We thank you that you have made us your own and that you guide and control and watch over and protect our lives, and that you allow and bring into our lives all that is good for us, even that which is painful. We pray, Lord, that you would help us by your spirit to continue to learn 
obedience to you in hardships, perseverance in trials, to know, Lord, that there is nothing on this earth from man or any other source that we have to fear but you alone. And that's because you have reconciled us to yourself. We have peace with you and uh, the joy that brings to us um, is indeed our strength as we as we face the sorrows and hardships of this world. So we pray you would strengthen us in that hope and in that faith. And Lord, as we now gather with the rest of the saints for worship, Lord, we pray that you would be with us and that uh, our time together in worship will be honoring to you in all respects. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.